I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Thanks, as always, for checking us out here on the GM Shuffle. I hope everybody is staying safe out there as uh, things are opening up. Phase two here in Jersey, which is big news for me and Mike. So, Mike, I celebrated phase two by going to the dentist. I also enjoyed going to Dick's Sporting Goods with my eldest son three weeks later than his uh, birthday because he wanted catching equipment. So we went to Dick's Sporting Goods. So rather than get like, you know, a face mask, a chest protector, you know, a shin guard, you get this whole package together. We go to the front desk and they've got on the ground, right, six feet apart. Everyone has a face mask, of course. I'm not kidding you. It took 15 minutes to ring up the thing. And I'm like, what's going on here? And she's like, wow, there's a barcode, Zaka, another barcode. I'm like, you've been shut down for three months. <laughs> now we have a barcode issue. I couldn't wait to get to a store again. Now I can't wait to get back to quarantine. It isn't amazing. I mean, well, I'm down here in Ocean City, and I think Ocean City, because we're so far south that they think nobody's going to pay attention to us. I think we're in phase three down here. I don't think they've really given a crap about it. I think, I mean, I go by the the, the bars are, you know, when you have to leave the island here, Ocean City's a dry town. So you're, there's no bars where you can't have any booze at a restaurant on the island. So you go across the bridge, and there's all these places that you can drink and have fun, and, and they're crowded. I mean, you would never know we were in a pandemic. I mean, you would never know it down here. I mean, the boardwalk's packed. Kids, there's nobody, there's no schooling or, you know, schools haven't gotten out. You know, so schools are out. So the town's crowded, but I'm with you. I mean, like the last thing I want to do is go to a store and wait in line. Like, you know, that's the last thing. And the dentist, you know, when I was a kid, I threw up on the dentist. I could still remember it to this day. You know, I got sick in there and like, I have a phobia about the dentist. Like, there's just no way I want to go. Like, I would rather... You know, I would rather have, you know, like torture than, than have to go to the dentist. It's just, it's, it's, the, it's the worst of all time. As a kid, you always hear about root canals, if it's the worst thing ever. And I, w- I always thought it was exaggerated. And then I actually had a root canal. And you're absolutely right. Like, I, I'm claustrophobic. And a root canal, it is so invasive. Like, you literally have five different things in your mouth. You got to stay still for two hours. I'm with you. It's an absolute nightmare. It is the worst. When I was in Cleveland, I was, you know, working all the time. I had to go to this uh, this great dentist I went to. And finally, I had like about six cavities. I had to get root canal because I didn't, you know, I hadn't gone to it in like three years. I mean, Millie was on me. You got to go to the dentist. You got to go to the dentist. I'm like, that's the last place I want to go, you know? Like, I'm dealing with the dentist every day here in this fucking office. Like, that's the last place I want to go. <laughs> and then I ended up going and I was like, I was, remember in the movie, I mean, this is dates. Remember in the movie 10 when Arthur, when, when, uh, Dudley Moore. Dudley Moore goes to the dentist and he's got that's, that's what I felt like but there was no Bo Derek on the other end of my dentist appointment it was horrible <laughs> if only we have a perfect 10 waiting for us on the other end uh, we're going 
to talk some NFL here, although it has been a relatively quiet week, but we're going to keep going with our betting talk here. Who's overpriced and the betting public? We're going to look specifically at the NFC East, the Cowboys, Eagles, Giants, and the Redskins. Plus, there was a lot of hullabaloo uh, about the Sopranos, the fact that last week people discovered that David Chase may have accidentally revealed the fate of Tony Soprano. That was the 13th anniversary of the series finale. So how about this? This is an almost impossible task, but me and Mike are going to give our favorite five episodes in the series history. As always, you can follow us on Instagram. Mike is at M Lombardi NFL. Same as his Twitter handle. You can follow me at Nan S. Burke. You can all follow us on Instagram at the GM Shuffle. We start, though, with baseball. God, Mike, what a mess this has been. And I give Rob Manfred credit for this. When asked about it by Mike Greenberg on ESPN, he said, oh, this has been a disaster. No question about it. There's no mincing words. I had thought spring training would be started by now. We were hoping July 4th baseball. What's more American than that? The national pastime. Instead, it's been just an absolute mess. Before I give my two cents, I want your take on this because obviously you see negotiations going on. And what you can tell as much as anybody is the real lack of trust between both sides, right? I think it's fairly obvious. They don't trust one another. And I think the Mets dilemma is at the forefront of this, you know, where the Mets were getting ready to be sold for $2.5 billion, And the players are sitting there saying, I think the players in Major League Baseball are different than the players in in football. The players in football don't even recognize the owner's value of the franchise. They don't even talk about it. Like there's like I I truly believe if I was running the players union, I would say to the owners, look, great. You want 48% of the revenue, we you get 50 we, you know, we want to split the revenue, we get but at some point we have made your franchises. You guys are all buying yachts right? We have made you so much money. There should be a pool of money going into what we call the increased value of the franchise. Now, you own the team and you're entitled to, you've taken on the liability, but it's almost, there's really not like the mom and pop store where you have, where you get liability if you don't get, I mean, you're guaranteed revenues based on the TV. So for me, baseball players, that's what they're always looking at the value of the franchise. What, you know, and I read Tom Boswell's column the other day and he's like, well, what's no big deal if the owners lose 20 million a year? Look at how much their franchises have gone up since they've owned them. You know, and 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 to a degree, that's a great point. But also, you know, they've assumed the liability. But then to the other point is there's really is no liability. They're making money. I think the Mets thing, AD, and I'd like to hear your take on this. I think the Mets thing has caused problems because the players see the Mets potentially was sold for $2.5 billion or whatever. And now that they reneged on it, what are they going to go for? And how can the owners cry poverty when the Mets are in that situation? Yeah, you go back to March 27th, and that was when so much of the season was up in the air, and they came to this agreement. I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. Major League Baseball, the MLBA, MLBPA said, okay, we agree. MLBPA is not going to sue for full salaries in the event of a canceled season. They agreed on prorated salaries in the event the season would have to be shortened. Think about that, March 27th. Now, that seems straightforward, right? 81 games, okay, I get pro-rated 50% of my usual salary, but MLB contended that that agreement was just a starting point and insisted the players take lower pay on a per-game basis. So you go back and forth. As soon as MLB threw out the revenue-sharing plan, you knew that was a non-starter. The one thing that the players are going to fight tooth and nail, no matter what, they're never going to agree to revenue sharing in terms of a salary cap. As you point out, in football, you have it. In hockey, you have it. Basketball, you have it. Baseball, no. Those pl- that union is so steadfast, they'll never agree to a cap. We'll give you you know, a luxury tax, something like that. Okay, fine. 
But the way the negotiations have gone, I mean, it's amazing to look at public sentiment because generally, Mike, I feel like people get mad at players because they say, oh, my God, I can't believe Bryce Harper is getting $300 million. This guy's a stiff. He shouldn't get paid that much, blah, blah, blah. But to your point, no one ever actually says, well, look at what the Phillies owner makes. You know, look at how much how much the guys make sitting on their yachts and the billions of dollars they're not spending. And to that point, specifically with the Mets, the, the value of franchises has gone up further than the salaries have over the last 10 years. And that's where the players say, all right, I understand the fact you're losing revenue from no fans this year. And the owners are saying that's about 40% of revenue gone from fans not being in the stands. So, you know, basically they're saying, can you take a further cut from the prorated salary to be as simple as possible? If I make $10 million, I'm a major league baseball player, prorated would be $5 million. The owners are saying, okay, take another 40% cut out of that or 30%, something like that. And the players are saying, no, even the last proposal was 76 games, 80% prorated. And the players have been, have been stubborn. No, no, you got to go 100% prorated. I'm not taking a further cut because, A, they say you guys already have a lot of money so I don't need to take a further cut. B, you know, there's a feeling the owners haven't paid the middle tier of players the last two free agent seasons anyway. So they go, listen, you kind of screwed us the last couple of years, so I'm not taking a further cut. And we collectively bargain and have these negotiations. Now, in good faith, fine. You want extra playoffs, which, of course, is huge for the sport. That's what the owners have been saying. Hey, if we get an extra round of playoffs, if we make this more like basketball, where 16 of 30 teams make the playoffs rather than 10 of 30 in baseball, we want to go 14 of 30 in baseball, the players said, okay, we'll agree to that. That's more revenue for you guys. October is where baseball makes its money. Of course, they revenue all that TV money from Fox, uh, specifically in TBS for the playoffs. And to TBS, you know, Turner, they just signed a new deal right now. Major League Baseball announced it. And that's what the players go, all right, you can't cry poor when all of a sudden you sign another TV deal. And it's as simple as this for the players. As they said the other day, Mike, just tell us when and where. Like now Mike Trout's tweeting that. Bryce Harper's tweeting that. Yeah. Just tell us when and where because the negotiation hasn't worked out. And the owner, Rob, or excuse me, the commissioner, Rob Manfred, can enact a 50-game season. And that's what we're waiting for. And think about this. As of last Wednesday, once Rob Manfred said to Carl Ravitch and ESPN, 100% unequivocally we're having a season, to Monday saying, you know what? It's less than 100%. Now I'm not confident we're going to have a season because it's not in good faith. It's amazing how poisonous this has become. You know, it seems to me like that Manford doesn't have control of the owners. It seems to me like there's too much of a committee. When you make a deal on March 27th that you have a signed collective agreement and then you want to renegotiate that agreement, then that tells me there were owners that say, why the hell did you do that deal? Like, why did we do that? Like, that's bullshit. And when you're talking about billionaires, they're used to getting their way. And I think that this is really, I don't think Manfred has control of his constituents. I don't think he's out there representing them. He looks like a pawn. He looks like the guy that has to answer to a lot of people and really can't answer to people. And so he doesn't have the authority to do a deal. Now, he has the authority to implement 50 games, but to me, there's an absence of trust and an absence of command by Manford. And I think the players, what they have is they do have command. I mean, you know, their, their union chief, Tony, what's his last name, Tony? Tony Clark. Tony Clark has complete command of the situation. The players are unified in what they're doing. And I think at the end of the day, there has to be a voice of reason because, you know, what's happened is when billionaires fight with millionaires, Nobody can sympathize with that, right? Like, you know, like some of these left-handed pitchers that make all this money that can't get anybody out, you know, it's like at some point, you, everybody's overpaid, including the owners. 
can't we come to some resolution? Like if anybody tells me the players aren't overpaid based on their performance, you're crazy. And don't tell me the owners aren't making way more than what they really are. That's why to me, I come back to the Mets. If the Met and the Mets are trying to get this extension of the loan, the $250 million from JP Chase, and if they get that, that buys them some more time to sell the team. And, you know, the 76er owner, you know, he's He's looking at it, but they're always those guys from Apollo. They're always looking for distressed sales. They want to buy seventy cents on a dollar, sixty cents on a dollar. I, I think really it'll see. It's going to be funny if the Mets sell within the next two weeks what they sell for and what that messaging is. Yeah, the, the one thing I'll agree with the owners on is this: is that they do not want to extend the season because that potential second wave. So at one point, the players had said, "Hey, listen, 114 game regular season will play into November. We can pick a neutral site, warm weather place, make it like the Super Bowl. Hey, the World Series this year is going to be in Miami with a retractable roof, etc." But the owners said, "No, no, we don't want to push with that second wave. We got to get this done." And our TV partners, and of course, TV drives a lot of this conversation. They want the playoffs in October. You don't want baseball going in November, going head to head with the NFL, a presidential election, a potential second wave. There's a lot going on. So for baseball, the clock is ticking. You got to get this deal signed up. By the time they announce a deal, Mike, you know, theoretically, you need a week for players to report. You need three weeks for spring training. You got 50 game season. The playoffs are in October. And by Halloween, you're out of there. And at this point, uh, it's funny when you look at the pie graph of blame. It's interesting your point you made about Manfred and the owners. I saw a poll the other day. They said, who do you blame? The players, the owners, or Rob Manfred? The number one overwhelming, people are saying, is the owners. Because they had a deal, and now you guys are trying to change the deal. Manfred's number two, and the players, people blame the least. Which oftentimes, people say, I can't believe this bum makes this much money. In this instance, people are actually sympathetic to the players. I think that's right. And I think Manfred doesn't have control of the group. I mean, it's pretty obvious. you know. And he's trying to make everybody happy. And when you try to make everybody happy, no one's happy. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I think this is exactly this is exactly the case that who, whenever you're negotiating a contract, you can't have too many fingers. I mean, it, it, when, when I negotiated a contract with Al was different, but with Art Modell, it was two negotiations. You had to negotiate with Art to get the money to then go pay. And now you're negotiating again. Right. And so now you've got these two negotiations, whereas opposed to like, look, here's your total salary cap. Here's you know, $200 million, you guys use it the way you want to use it because it's got to get used anyway, right? And then whatever it is, I'll judge you based on wins and losses. But when you line item each negotiation and you have to double negotiate, you can't win. That's an almost impossible. And that's what I see from the outside looking in to the owners and having to deal with it. And, and that's damn near impossible. Back to the original point you made about some owners saying, listen, if we play a season, I'm not going to make money this year. Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, made this point again to Mike Kramer the other day on ESPN saying, listen, this isn't about the NBA returning to make money. Like, we're well aware of the fact we're going to try to quarantine in Orlando for like two months and try to get the playoffs in their way and go. But this isn't like a money-making venture. We're doing this to give back to the fans. We're doing this to get a resolution to our season. You know, we're doing it, I don't want to sound altruistic, but we're doing it for the right reasons. And I think that's the problem. You know, that's, that's my final thought is the baseball owner who's saying, hmm, you know what, I'd rather just take a bath on 2020 because I'm not going to make any money anyways. Well, you're missing the forest for the trees because if you don't have a season, you're missing baseball for 18 months. You're going to go from the Nationals winning the World Series last year to no baseball till April of next year. That's irreparable damage, Mike, to the game if you go 18 months without the sport. Yeah, and I want to ask you this question before we close on it. For me, I think they're, they're in a danger zone in baseball. I mean, because baseball is not the millennial sport. It isn't. It hasn't become the young. How much impact... 
do you think this is really going to have in terms of the fans just saying, okay, that's enough is enough? I mean, what is the fans' enthusiasm for the sport? Well, you're right. You look at the demographic. I saw a story the other day. They said in the year 2000, you know, the, the median age of the baseball fan was 50. And now 20 years later, it's at 57. So you're already in danger, as you said, of losing that millennial audience because the game isn't fast enough and it's too slow paced and maybe too many games, which is why, by the way, I kind of like the 50 game season. I said, you know, it's kind of like March Badness. Like you certainly would trim the fat that no longer would you say, oh, I'll pick up this series next week. No, no, no. Every game matters. Every pitch matters. So the 50 games, I think, would actually help in terms of, you know, the ADD of the younger sports fan. But listen, the strike in 94, they said it took about a decade to get the sport back to where it was. And last year, they had record revenues in baseball, $10.8 billion. You know, for a sport that doesn't have the national reach that it used to, $10.8 billion, because the local money is huge from TV and the local attendance is still very, very big. But uh, if you don't have baseball this year, uh, listen, if 94, that was a strike, that cost you a decade, I would think it'd be a similar situation now. Like you, you had to have Cal Ripken's streak and McGuire and Sosa, the home run chase, that helped bring baseball back in 98. In this instance, it would take a long time, Mike. I think you're right because I love, I, I mean, I grew up on Stratomatic Baseball. I loved baseball. I could watch it. You know, I watched Kiner's Corner. I mean, I watched all of it, right? I watched the, you know, because I was fortunate to grow up in South Jersey and we had Channel 11, the Yankees. We had Channel 9. This is before cable We even was in play. We had Channel 9, Channel 11, and then we had the Phillies. So you had three, you know, you had three markets you could watch baseball. You could watch baseball as a kid damn near all day long. And it was fun, you know, and, and I would grow up, but I'm old enough to remember the World Series being played in the afternoon, you know. And so there, I had great enthusiasm for baseball and played it every day that I could and, and loved playing it. But then I, I got away from it because it just seemed like it took too much time. And, and I, but I still love playoff baseball. Like I still love watching it. You know, I still love the whole the whole setup of all that. So for me, I think that's the fine. I think you're right. The 50 games gets people like me, and I'm not saying I'm the because I'm I'm the over 57 crowd, but people like me that you know would want that. I think that's probably a fairly good thing. Last thought: all your time in football, because I always find this interesting. When, as you mentioned, you know, a football guy who loves baseball, like, give give me a football guy, whether an executive, a player, a coach, somebody who really loved baseball all of your time in the NFL. Oh, the guy that loved baseball the most that I have ever been around was Ernie Acorsi, the general manager. It was it was with me, and I was with him in Cleveland. Then he went to the Giants. He worked for the Baltimore Orioles at a time. I mean, he loved baseball with a passion. I mean, he was you know he used to read Branch Rickey's book every year. He loved the Yankees. He loved baseball. He would go to a baseball game. You know, he would drive to when I was in Cleveland. He would drive to Tiger Stadium on an afternoon to watch just because he wanted to go see. You know, he wanted to sit at Tiger Stadium. He got me really in enthused about baseball again when I was in Cleveland with him because he loved it so much and and you know and it was a good game when I worked for the when I worked for the Eagles we were at the vet and so like Brian Broaddus and I were working together and so I we you know we'd have lunch of course you know we didn't get fed so we would and if the Eagles if the Phillies were playing a home game go get a dog and sit in the stands and watch a couple innings you know and then go back into your office that that to me was fun but you know unless I'm with somebody that's driving the enthusiasm for the sport you know, I I really didn't, but of course he man, he loved it. He knew all the players. He played fantasy baseball. He he loved it. <laughs> That's very cool. All right, stay tuned. We come back. Mike and I are going to break down the public betting the NFC East ahead of the 2020 season, and it feels like an impossible task, right? The greatest episodes of all time from the greatest show of all time. All that and more next on the GM Shuffle. 
All right, anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase, hit it long and hit it straight. Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So, as a novice golfer, I went and hit up our friends over at PXG because they have an all-new driver called the Black Ops. I mean, my man Chris over in Henderson has hooked me up with a phenomenal driver that's built to my game. My new game that doesn't really do much of anything on the course, but it has what I need in terms of the club head speed and the kind of grip that I need to go out there and be the best to my ability. I mean, this is music to ears to any golfer, whether you're a novice like myself or if you've been playing the game for decades. The PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. That's just ridiculously high. So what you got to do Go check out the PXG Black Ops Driver. You'll be as impressed with it as I am. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com slash gmshuffle and use code gmshuffle at checkout. That's pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle for free shipping on all equipment, pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle. All right, we're going to keep this going here when it comes to NFL betting. Who's overpriced and the betting public? So the Dallas Cowboys win total at 10 and a half. DraftKings Sportsbooks, they've got the betting splits for team win totals and so on. Here's what's key in case you're new to the podcast. Over for the Cowboys, minus 130. 85% handle, 54% bets. The under is at plus 107. That's a 15% handle and 46% bets. You got Ha Ha Clinton Dix now, the safety, Gerald McCoy, the DN. They drafted CeeDee Lamb, the wide receiver. You got the cornerback, Trevon Diggs. Obviously, Jason Witten is now gone, Randall Cobb, Robert Quinn. But Dallas, it feels like it, like it was a really strong draft, Mike, no doubt about it. You have a better head coach now, Mike McCarthy. That 8-8 eight and eight season with Jason Garrett, well, that's not going to happen. But how about the 85% handle on the over at minus 130 for a win total of 10.5? How do you like this? So what that tells you is a lot of sharp money coming in on the over. Even though there's only 54% of the bets, the money is saying it's the over. And, and I'm with the sharp money here at the, at the over. You know, I think when you see this 54-46 split, you know, that tells you, you know, people are betting, but a lot of $5 bets are on the under and a lot of significant money's on the over. And I like the over here. And I think the key to the Cowboys season is Jim Tomasula, the defensive line coach. I think Tomasula can make a difference because, you know, if they get Randy Gregory back, they sign Alden Smith. I mean, they've got all these guys that, you know, can rush the passer. And if they get them back and they get them going with their ability to th to move the football and score points, and I think obviously Dak will get signed. I think the Cowboys are are really a strong play. I like the Cowboys' opportunity. I think McCarthy's first year. There's always a bump, you know. I think the longer that goes, the less it'll be effective. But I like this really tremendously, and I think the I think the I think the sharps, the betting, the guys that bet significant coin like the over. Cowboys have topped 10 and a half wins twice in the last 10 years, but offensive firepower, new coach. I like your thinking. The Philadelphia Eagles win total of nine and a half. The overs at plus 110, a 38% handle, 64% bets. The under is a 62% handle and 36% bets. They finally upgraded that secondary. A couple of corners in Darius Slay, Nikhil Roby Coleman. Um, 
They also drafted Jalen Rager, so you got some speed there. You lose Malcolm Jenkins, who I think is a big part of that secondary, and Nelson Aguilar, who is up and down as a receiver. Nine and a half wins, so you go, okay, they've definitely upgraded. But, Mike, the Eagles have only passed nine and a half wins once in the last five seasons when they won the Super Bowl. Right. And, and this team, you know, they lose Brandon Brooks this week. He tears his Achilles again. So he's out for the season. So they lose their starting right guard. Now their depth in the offensive line is problematic. You know, that their receiving core to me is problematic. You know, Jeffrey, they don't know when he's going to come back. Deshaun Jackson can't stay healthy. I don't think Rieger's going to be able to play as a fresh, as a rookie. I think anytime you can get Rieger on the under in terms of his production, I think the numbers at 850 yards, I mean, it's ridiculous. He's not going to, I mean, he's going to have a hard time getting on the field. Whiteside, they're got to count on him. The Eagles, to me, are really, really are, are problematic. They don't have a Mike linebacker that they can, that the green dot player. 62% of the handle is on the under. Okay, 62% of the handles on the other. That tells you the sharps like the under here. I love the under. I think it's really clear. I don't see how they get over 10 wins, uh, get 10 wins, because I think it's going to be a challenge. They have two They have two parts of their schedule that are very difficult. They don't have depth. They haven't been able to stay healthy the last two seasons. And frankly, I think at the end of the day, they don't have enough weapons to make plays. I think that they're in trouble. I really do. I like the under. Lack of explosiveness has been a problem for Philadelphia. So the Cowboys could be 11 and 5. The Eagles could be 9 and 7. That brings us to the Giants. By the way, Eagles tough schedule as well. Giants win total is at 6. The over at minus 125, a 33% handle, 66% bets. The under at plus 103, 67% handle, 34% bets. You know, in terms of additions, really haven't done a whole lot. They lose Antoine Bethea for now, the safety. The Giants have only topped six wins once in the last six seasons. That's how bad the G-men have been recently. And this is Daniel Jones' first full season in the rebuild. The majority of people, Mike, are saying this is going to be a 5-11 and 11 team. 67% handle taking the under. Yeah, and, and and again, I think the Sharps think they're going over. Now, their kicker just got arrested for DUI. That's a problem. I mean, look, the Giants six wins once in the last six seasons. That just demonstrates how bad of an organization they've become. They truly are the Dunning-Kruger effect here. They really are. They have people running their organization that don't know. And I think that's it shows up on the field. And I think Joe Judge is going to have a hard time getting his hands around some of this stuff. Because let's face it, Joe Judge was a half a year, really one year as a receiver coach. Jason Garrett's going to run his offense the way he's run it for years. Not much motion, not much shifts. I think the longer the season goes on for the Giants, it's going to be a real issue. I'm not a fan of the Giants whatsoever. I think it's under six. I don't think they're good enough. I don't think they're going to be good enough. I think defensively, they can't rush the passer. You know, they signed Frackle. They signed Blake Martinez. Where are they going to get pressure on the quarterback? It's certainly not coming from Leonard Williams. I mean, he it's almost like he wants to – he's social distance from quarterbacks for years since he's been drafted. So I, I'm, I'm down on them completely. I'm opposite of – I think I'm going under. It's 60% of the handle. The sharp money's going over here. I'm going to go against the sharps and go under. All right, the Washington Redskins last in the NFC East at five and a half is the win total. 86% handle, 68% bets. The under at minus 139, 14% handle, 32% bets. You got Chase Young now. Of course, they drafted him. He's an absolute stud. You lose a couple of corners, Quinton Dunbar and Josh Norman. Uh, they added Ron Rivera, of course, they folded this offseason along with defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio. 
three and 13 in 2019. They had topped five and a half wins in their previous four seasons. And so far, betters, at least Mike, by this money, they're taking the plunge. They like the Redskins at the over. Yeah, I think they're, everybody sees Rivera and they see some form of instant upgrade, right? And with this defensive front that they have with Chase Young coming in there, you know, they've got Sweat from last year, who was a very impressive rookie, plus the two kids inside, Allen and Payne, to go along with Kerrigan. I mean, this team can rush the passer. And and one thing we know about what the 49ers taught us last year, which is has gone on since, as Tony would say, for all the debts at time immemorial, you know, is when defensive lines win, the, the team wins. And this defensive line can win. Now, how good is Haskins? I think that remains to be seen. Can they get the six wins? I think that's plausible. I'm in favor of the over here at six because I, I do think they can get the six. I think if the number's posted at six, I don't think they can get the seven. I would stay away. At five and a half, the number six. I don't think they go under. I like it at six. All right, that's our thoughts on the NFC East. Don't go anywhere. The Sopranos, the greatest show of all time. We're going to tell you the greatest episodes of all time after some news circling on the internet that David Chase, the creator, may have given up what happened to the fate of Tony. We'll dive in next. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, the second round of the playoffs have been absolutely phenomenal, and if you really like a team, you can bet on them for the futures markets, maybe some conference finals MVPs as the conference finals approach, or how about NBA finals MVP? And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just five bucks only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So this story made the rounds last week because June 13th was the series finale 13 years ago for the greatest show of all time in The Sopranos. And Mike, I read this story in the Sopranos session. So I'm a little surprised why this was making the rounds just last week because the book came out a couple of years ago. To recap, it's from Alan Sepinwall, Matt Zoller's sites. I've interviewed those guys on Cinephile, great guys, and it's a tremendous book. They go through literally every episode of The Sopranos. And when they were talking to David Chase, the creator, at one point Chase said, yes, I think I had that death scene around two years before the end. 
and then was talking about Tony meeting with Johnny Sack in Manhattan, going through the Lincoln Tunnel for this meeting. So Matt Zoller cites one of the authors, acknowledged the slip up to Chase saying, you realize, of course, you just referred to that as a death scene. And Chase responded, fuck you guys. Attempting to walk back the comment, Chase later said he had changed his mind and didn't want to do a straight death scene. And he also addressed not giving fans a definitive answer on Tony's fate. I don't know if that's my job. They've interpreted the scene that way. That should be a good thing that there's different interpretations. So now you got a lot of people, Mike, going, see, I told you, Tony's dead. I'm not buying it. I don't think he's dead. I, I don't think he's dead either. And, and, and here's what you can't explain. Tony makes the deal with New York, with the Lupitarsi family, and he makes the deal. They whack Phil. Okay, who would then order a hit on Tony? Sills in the hospital. Bobby's dead. Paulie really doesn't want to take over. Like somebody has to order a hit to pay for the guy in the members only jacket to walk in there and hit him. Right. And people are making so much out of the death scene. You know, they're saying, well, you know, Tony got shot in the episode members only. And therefore, since the guy had a members-only jacket, well, I think Chase is fucking with us. I think Chase is playing with it. It's a little bit like, you know, the first time Chrissy drove Tony around, he had a hat on. When Chrissy died, he had a hat on. Do you want to, you know, like, should I have known that Chrissy had a hat in a car driving Tony that he was going to get killed? I, I can't think of that, right? So... I think it's just Chase's ability to, I do think Chase probably wanted to whack Tony because, you know, Tony says earlier in the show, he says, you know, there's only two ways guys like me, you know, end up either in jail or dead. But then he revises it and says, you know, that's why he starts to get Chrissy involved. So there's a buffer between them. So I do think at Chase, when he started the arc of this show, AD, and correct me, you tell me you what you think, is I do think he was going to whack Tony. But I think as he went on, he decided, you people, I'm whacking you. I'm not whacking Tony. Yeah, I love that concept because, you know, everything is POV, the point of view of Tony as he's watching the members only guy. He hears the bell. He's looking up. And that last shot, it's from our POV. We're the ones looking at Tony and it cuts to black. And as he and Bobby Bacala are talking about, hey, what's it like when you die? I'm sure that kind of just goes to black. And you see earlier, Silvio has that mob hit and there's no audio, right? It's all quiet. And then still realizes that there's an assassination going on. I, I think that back to your point about the members only jacket and clues that David Chase gives, this show was so smart and so self-referential and so postmodern. And for guys like you and me who love mob shows, mob, sh- you know, mob shtick, do you think David Chase is really going to copy The Godfather? Like, do you think after 86 episodes, he's going to say, oh, you know what? I'm just going to do what The Godfather did. Like, no, he's playing with convention. Exactly what he said. He's toying with the audience saying, oh, I know you guys have watched The Godfather a hundred times. So now you think this guy's going to go in the bathroom and take a gun to the toilet, just like Michael Corleone, and he's going to go shoot Salazzo. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. That'd be the most predictable way to end ever. So I'm going to give you an idea that could happen, but I'm not going to say definitively what will happen. This is a show that once had an episode, The Test Dream, was literally 30 minutes of like Tony turning into Frankenstein. He's being chased by an angry mob. His tooth is falling out. Annette Benning is sitting at the table. Like one thing about the Sopranos, it was never going to be easy, which was part of his greatness. They wanted to challenge the audience. And the idea that after 86 episodes, Tony just gets whacked in front of his family while eating onion rings, that seems too easy to me. And, and back to your point again, who wanted to whack him? Like, I think he's more in trouble because Carlo flipped. That's a concern. I think that's a problem. I don't think he's getting killed anytime soon, but he could be going to the big house soon. Oh, yeah. Carlo flipping was huge. I mean, Carlo's sons got arrested for dealing heroin, so he flipped. That was bad. Carlo, you know, Carlo, we knew he was the guy that, you know, buried the head of, of the big guy that came over from uh, Fat Dom that came over. You know, like, there's a lot of shit that Carlo knows, right? You know? Yeah. I think that's the issue because 
because look, let's face it. What you know, I said this to you. Like, what what mafia boss is going to get killed eating onion rings? I mean, Carmine Galant got killed in Coney Island. I mean, he was having a nice pasta dinner. Paul Castellano comes out of Sparks. He just had a steak dinner. Like, if you're running a family, you ain't getting whacked eating onion rings. It just ain't that. That ain't it. You know, it's not suburban America having onion rings. Like, you know, you're going to have some kind of dinner as your last supper. And I and I get all the fact that the guy went into the bathroom. Why would he need to go in the bathroom to get a gun? He wasn't frisk. Like people missed the whole point. The reason Salat, the reason Michael had to go to the bathroom was because he knew he was going to get frisk. Exactly. They need to have a gun planted there. You know, it's so, it's just, and yes, I know Tony's favorite scene in The Godfather was that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes too, other than when Sonny goes to the toll plaza. But but to me, uh, you know, I, I just think there's too much being made of it. I don't think he got whacked, but what, give me your top five, AD. I want to, I, I, first of all, I want to say this, the number one episodes, according to Rolling Stone in 2019, which was shocking to me, was number one was college, number two, long-term parking, three, I dream of Juni Cusimano, four, Whitecaps, and five, Pine Barrens. Couldn't agree more about college being shocking. I mean, I know it's a very important episode because if you ask David Chase and, and the late James Gandolfini, they said that's where the show really kind of hit its stride because it's partly about Tony being a domesticated dad, taking his daughter around to find college, and also seeing a guy who used to be a rat and trying to kill him. So you had this real balance between, oh, suburban dad and, of course, mob boss. But I'm with you. I, that's not definitely not in my top five. I'll give you mine. Long-term parking, I couldn't agree with more. That's with Adriana Got Whacked, season five, episode 12. Absolutely incredible. The build-up to it, Christopher's reaction to it, and how Tony takes care of it. Absolutely vicious from Silvio. It's a great episode. And Adriana was such an unforgettable character. I mean, you just you missed her so much after she was gone. And that was a great build-up to all the stuff that happened with her. Long-term parking, is that in your top five? That's in my top five, too. And, and you know, you, the debate about Stephen Van Zandt didn't want to do it. He didn't want to pull her hair. He didn't want to call her the C word. He was really fighting that. And, and Adriana DeRay Mateo, she was the one who kind of encouraged them to do it. And just that, you know, the Sean Spring song of leaving California playing over it to me was just so impactful. And the telephone call that we thought was going through, I have long-term parking as my third best one. I thought it was great. It was written by Terrence Winter, you know, because I'm big on the writers. Like, there's no way I was going to have a top five, you know, without my man Frank Renzulli in the top five, because I thought he was one of the best and funniest writers. But this one, it was my third one. Yes, I'm in there with you. All right. I've also got White Caps in there. This was like, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or The Sopranos? Rather than Richard Burton and Liz Taylor dueling, you had Tony and Carmella. Finally, Edie Falco has had enough of Jimmy Gandolfini's philandering and that whole episode. I mean, those verbal exchanges, the fireworks in that episode, at the time, that was the highest rated Sopranos episode, season four, episode 13, because you got these two great actors, two heavyweights. Gandolfini won three Best Actor Emmy Awards. Edie Falco won three Best Actress Emmy Awards. And the way they go toe-to-toe, Mike, listen, I know you and Millie have never had any fights. You have a blissful <laughs> marriage, but everybody has some ups and downs in marriages. Everybody has a couple of screaming matches. Their fights in that episode, that gets about as raw as as ever. When she confesses to Tony, she has fantasized about Fury of Dream. The look on Gandolfini's face when you look like he's going to smash her in the... I mean, that's about as vicious an episode as I've ever seen as far as their marriage together. Yeah, I thought the, the acting was incredible in Whitecaps. It did not make my top five. It didn't make my top 10, but I thought their, I thought their acting was unbelievable. I thought that it was... You know, to me, the appeal of the show is the humor. It was very dramatic. Their acting was incredible. My, my, I have, for my number two show of all time, The Night in White Satin Armor. 
it's when Richie gets killed. I don't think you could have a better show than that one. You know, I think that, you know, they're arguing. Richie's drinking Chianti Classico, Sinatra's favorite wine there, sitting there at the table. That was written by uh, Mitchell Green, uh, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green. Tony gets surprised. Tony's got to come clean up for his sister, put her on. I mean, that was, to me, the quintessential, one of the all-time great episodes. And it was six on Rolling Stone. Janice shooting him was stunning. You're like, oh my God. Like, that was one of the great, oh my God moments when, when Janice ends up popping because he's not going to take any more abuse from this guy. And this is kind of followed Chase's template. He loved to have the penultimate episode to be the shocking episode. Like episode 12, something major would happen. And episode 13, it wouldn't be as significant as you might think. Having said that, I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano is a great one. That was the finale of season one, episode 13. Uh, Rolling Stone had it number three. I love it because that's where Tony finally comes to admitting the fact his mother tried to have him killed. Yeah. And that episode, you know, where he's in the hospital, where he says to him, like, I know what you did. Like, if you actually said to somebody, Mike, hey, listen, there's this show. I just started watching it. It's about this mom who tries to plan to kill her kid. And the kid finds out about like, what? He's like, oh, and he's also a mob boss who's in therapy. That's where he confronts his own mother in the hospital and says, look at her. And he goes, look at her. She's laughing. And the shot of Libya being wheeled away with this curious smile on her face. That episode was unbelievable. I, I love that episode. So there's a reason I didn't have it. I have second opinion with Uncle Junior as my fifth one, but this should have been in there. I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano was incredible. I thought, you know, everything you'd want in The Sopranos, it had, you know, Artie Bucco holding that gun on him, you know, L- L- Livia lying to Artie Bucco about him, you know, the whole thing, how it all played out. Uncle Junior pretending that, you know, they come and arrest Uncle Junior. I couldn't agree more. It was an incredible episode. It's an incredible end of the season. And then when they all end up, you know, Paulie's got poison ivy sitting there at the dinner and, and they're all at the Vesuvio in the rainstorm and, and you know, Artie cooks for him and he really doesn't want to and of course the Mizanab in the back uh, Artie's wife Charmaine's you know pissed off half the time anyway so I, I love that one my second opinion I thought was written by Lawrence Connor I thought was really good I love Uncle Junior in that it, to me it was the quintessential Uncle Junior yelling at Bobby Bacalot you know you ask one question about my fucking diet you know <laughs> there's so many great lines in this you tell me to crap an hour later they're hosing it down with disinfectant I mean you know you say crap I, and it reminded me of my mother's so much because my, if a doctor would say something to my mother, it would be the viable according to everything. So I like that was my fifth one. Then, you know, I liked Funhouse when Pussy Gets Whacked. That was oh, my yeah. fourth show. I loved Funhouse. It didn't make Rolling Stones top 10 which is surprising. I thought Funhouse, again, you know, the, Tony's got to already come up here, you know, and then they call Pussy, you know, I had to, you know, and they start co- talking back and forth and then they whack Pussy on the boat. The Pussy fish lips talking. You knew, Tone, you know, when the lips are moving, you know, sw- and every time I hear the word swimming, I think best exercise, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that scene where, where Pussy's about to get whacked, and he tells that story about this girl who used to go down on her. Like, think about the fact, like, when you're about to die, you're trying to still have one last yuck with your buddies, right? Hey, remember that chick I used to bang? That, that's what his life has come down to. And, and the Sinatra music in the background is so perfect, you know? And it's just not in the eyes, please, you know? And then they take his jewelry off him, you know? And then he goes from being the beloved to somebody they had to kill. It's just that, I think that's where, you know, white caps. I think I dream of Juni Kuzamano with Janice. I think I think what we don't always understand about these characters is they're all all have an ability to switch from one second to the next, from normal to abnormal, and it's an instant. 
and there's no, it doesn't take long. You know, it, it's there, and there's no thought process in it. It just happens quickly, you know. And then my number one, my number one of all time that I, I is Amorfu. I, I love Amorfu. Renzulli was the telewriter on the show, which I'm never going to not give him credit. You know, it starts out with the Brooklyn Museum where Carmela's feeling like she's got some kind of something wrong with her and she's got blood in her, in her, in her urine. And so she's worried about that. And then we've got the Tony behavior with Gloria and, you know, the crazy love. Then he goes for advice. And then, you know, the whole Jackie Jr. And then Ralph, are you going to give him a pass? I mean, what are you going to do? And then you got, you know, you got Patsy Priest. He taking glory out in the car. The last face you're going to see is mine, not Tony's. <laughs> I, I don't know if there is a better episode. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people that listen to this pod could debate it. But for me, Amar Fu, again, season tw- season three, episode 12. Like you said about Night Might Star and Armor, episodes 12s are always the one. It isn't always the ending one. It's the, you know, Whitecaps was 13, but long-term parking was 12. Night and White Sun and Armor, 12. Uh, more food, 12. 12 was like the writing was at their absolute best. couple more just to throw at you to round up my top five. I love the Blue Comet. That was the penultimate episode. That's when Bobby Bakla gets killed, particularly that sequence in the train set, the way they intercut. You know, I agree with you. The writing was so special in the show, but this one was a real directorial showcase. The way they- inter- I love Blue Comet. Yeah, the way I they, love Blue Comet. The, the way they intercut that train running around there and then Bobby gets whacked. But the fact that Silvio's in the hospital, I mean, just the tension of that episode, I mean, physically, that last shot of James Gandolfini, literally Tony's sitting there so alone with a shotgun in a cabin in the middle of nowhere and you go, holy smokes. The whole house is caved in right now. That's a great episode. And one more, because I think what, what I also love is always how observational the show was. You know, Boca is an example of the fact, again, because of the fact Junior is going down on this girl, how that could completely change the whole dynamic. I want to mention a regular around the margins. That's the episode where Tony and Carmela almost slept together after Chris was out doing a drug deal. And afterwards, Tony and, and uh, excuse me, Tony and Adriana get in an accident. And afterwards, Chris is convinced that they're having an affair. The, remember the sequence where they're on the phone, they're playing telephone. And Junior goes, yeah, I heard she had her mouth on the old brajol. Yeah, and, at one, <laughs> and at one point, at one point, Tony says to Chris, like, he's beating the crap. I'm going to listen, I'm going to have to kill you unless you get it through your head that I didn't do anything. Because remember the one scene, uh, Christopher goes in the strip club and bought a bing. He's like, I'm coming for you. And Sylvia's like, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. The guy's shooting up the strip club. And Tony goes, unless you get it through your head that I didn't do anything, I have to kill you. And that's how like miscommunication, some sort of lack of trust, it can like overwhelm the whole stack of cards. And you get a great length from Adriana who says, listen, as pissed as Chris is, if it was me and the other, if the shoe was in the other foot, I would have killed him. <laughs> full, full stop. She was such a good character. I mean, maybe Major League Baseball should watch that. You know, how about Alan Seppenwall's favorite episode was Isabella? I love Isabella. I thought Isabella, it didn't make my top 10. You know, I mean, when Tony's laying on the table and they come in there and Agent Harris is trying to get him to flip and he says, oh, we're going to move to Utah and become Mr. and Mrs. John Smith, eat tomatoes with no taste. I mean, it's just, I mean, that was great. I thought that was incredible. And then we didn't even mention Pine Barrens because everybody thinks that's the easy one to mention. I love Pine Barrens. It's great. But in terms of the depth, you know, there's so many of them. I actually like Mr. and Mrs. John Sacramone. I love Live Free and Die. I think those are great. And I still think The Pilot's one of the best episodes I've ever seen. The Sopranos, the beginning one. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the full leather jacket when Richie gives Tony the jacket. Because Renzulli didn't write that, but that was based on a true story from his neighborhood. So he told me that years ago. So to me, we could keep going through it. 
I, I I love Amor Fu. Your number one was what? I'm gonna go long term parking. My number one. Yeah, I think you know to me, and, and I and I have it in my I have it in my top five too. I I and if you ask me tomorrow what what my top five, it's like Springsteen songs. If you ask me tomorrow what it would be, it might all change. And great point about Pine Barrens. I think everyone's gonna be shocked. Neither of us put it in the top five. I'm with you. I think it's a great episode. Steve Buscemi directed. It's obviously very funny. But I don't think that's the quintessential episode because he didn't have enough of the characters. I mean, it's, it's a great showcase for Paulie and Christopher, but I don't have enough of the other stuff, as great as that episode is. And at some point, by the way, GM Shuffle, we're going to get on the road. Once we get through this pandemic, we're going to do an episode from Holstein's. Maybe we'll do a meet and greet there. Me and Mike are going to have onion rings and some ice cream. So we look forward to that here on the GM Shuffle.